Hello there, welcome. This is a special edition of To a Certain Degree called Odd Numbers. Every other Monday, my guests and I choose a theme, we play some music, and we chat. There are tangents. I'm warning you up front. It's not a real warning, though, because tangents aren't that bad. Nothing to be scared of here. The topic for this episode is science fiction, and my guest is Hap Aziz. Hap is an educator, a technologist, and, most importantly, he has slightly more history than me watching space movies, reading space stories, and looking at space comic books. That's not to mention all the space TV shows as well. For more on this episode, please visit toacertaindegree.com. And now, on with the show. Bianca and Gaze on WPRK, Winter Park, Florida. You're listening to Odd Numbers. Good morning. My name is Nick. Every week uh, from 7 to 9 a.m., I have a very special guest. This week is no exception, and this week is a returning guest. Hap Aziz is here. Good morning, Hap. Good morning, Nick. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for coming in uh, early morning. Kind of a weird weather day, a little bit chilly. It is, and there's supposed to be rain in sunny central Florida, but, you know, we need it sometimes. We need it. Uh, but uh, So braving the weather to come in today. We just heard from Buke and Gase. That was uh, the, the name of the album, the EP is Scholars, and the name of the song, was scholars and i thought that was appropriate for hap coming in again today if you missed hap's first interview on the show got to know him a little bit better what was that 2017 i think a few years ago yeah yeah so look that up because it's a really good episode and we got to know him and his uh career journey uh coming out of high school what that meant um and just in general really good interview but now you're back uh, as a scholar in a particular topic. And a gentleman. And, well, I was going to say that eventually. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see how that goes, depending on how uh, much you agree with all of my ideas and laugh at my jokes. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> Nice. We're here today to talk about science fiction. That's right. A, a subject near and dear to my heart and brain. Uh, same here. So science fiction and fantasy were sort of my escapes, or not sort of, were absolutely my escapes growing up. I devoured books by everyone from Heinlein to uh, David Eddings to uh, all of the big names, um, uh, none of which I can think of right now, of course. They're so big, they don't fit in our minds they anymore. They don't, they don't. But, you know, there were a couple that I never really read. There was the Dune Saga that I never got into. Frank Herbert, yes. Yeah, and then um, I never read any of the Lord of the Ring books. Really? Either, yeah, and I know those are sort of the granddaddy of the fantasy world. But uh, Yes, and um, I, I think it took me a while, actually, to read those, and then I started reading some of uh, Tolkien's lesser-known works. Yeah. And um, I think it's Child of Huron, which sort of set the stage for everything that happened. I, I, I wept through that book. It was so powerful. Really? Yes. Okay, so that might be one I need to pick up. If you and, you know are very depressed and you want to just stick a nail in the coffin, that's it. That's the book to read. Okay, yeah. Yes. And oftentimes, that's, uh, it's a very cathartic experience mm -hmm. when you yes. get to do something like that. But Orson Scott Card mm -hmm. is yes. another one, Ender's Game and all those books. The Speaker for the Dead, that was the second in that series. That yeah. was my personal favorite out of, out of the... Uh, out of all of them. Yeah, and he's yeah. had many. He's followed the, the lives of all three of the... The children, and then, of course, all the friends and everybody. Yeah, he really explored that universe mm -hmm. uh, quite a bit. So seeing the same story told over again from different eyes or, you know, around the same timeline right. was very interesting. What is it about science fiction 
that appeal to you? And when do you start reading science fiction? Let's see. So um, the family lore is I started liking science fiction because when my mother was carrying me, when I was in the womb, she was watching all of those old black and white Japanese Godzilla movies, Mothra, Gamera. And so that was her thing. She was she loved watching those movies. And did so, she always love them, or was it like a pregnancy sort of desire, like ice cream and pickles I, and uh, Godzilla movies? Well, I, I wasn't there really to find out for sure, and I never asked her. And I think I'll ask her that. But um, she didn't live in the United States that much uh, earlier than I was born. So yep. she she came over a few years later than they had me, and then she was here most of the rest of her life. But uh, I, I will want to check on that. But anyway, uh, notwithstanding that, when I was young, I just really enjoyed robots. I mm-hmm. thought I was Astro Boy for a while. and then. Uh, but as I got older, I realized I was Iron Man. That was a little more realistic. And then um, so I liked Lost in Space. You know, I grew up in the 60s. Um, uh, Speed Racer, even Ultraman. Those were the shows that I watched. And then when I could start reading, I was always interested in books about space and uh, I remember one of the first books I got in first or second grade, those school book fairs, mm-hmm. it was a dictionary. And I didn't realize until years later it was a dictionary that was written by, you know, it was A is for astronaut, B is for whatever. And uh, it was written by Isaac Asimov, and he became one of my early favorite authors. Mm-hmm. And um, he had so many short stories that were easy to read. He's not a complex writer, but he's very, you know, he's... Um, very straight and clean with his prose and dialogue, and there's not a lot of, um, not a lot of uh, psychological depth that would be difficult for a younger reader. But then as I got older, I, I started reading other things. But really, it was probably that Lost in Space and the Lost in Space robot that really got me going. Was there, the, for Lost in Space, it was literally, you know, the, if anybody is not familiar with the plot, which is probably a lot of listeners at this point, it is a family a doctor, or a couple of families, a doctor and a robot. Yeah, the original Lost in Space, because there is now the fairly popular oh, yeah, Netflix version. Yeah, that, yeah, um, yeah. Season really one it. ran last year. Season two should come out this year. My daughter keeps asking me, when's season two coming out? Um, but the original version, it was fairly campy. It started out as a straight science fiction story. Yeah. And Irwin Allen wrote that along with all those other science fiction shows he was doing in the 60s. And uh, so it was a story about the space family Robinson uh, that was going into space to colonize, and they were going to Alpha Centauri, which is the closest star outside of our solar system. And um, there was a stowaway on board, this Dr. Smith character, who was actually more nefarious early on than he became more comic booky later, but he sabotaged the robot that was on the ship to destroy the colon- uh, the, you know, the family before they could get out. And I wasn't quite sure how the colonization would work because it was literally just one family and their children and then one other person outside of the family, the the pilot of the the spaceship. So it was going to be a very odd colonization scheme. But um, but, uh, so the robot was a bad guy. The doctor was a bad guy. But within, um, you know, the first half of the first season, he became a little more sympathetic and more comedic. And then by the second and third seasons, the show was, you know, really off the rails in terms of camp, but it was still and fun for a kid. Were they going from planet to planet on that one? They they weren't originally supposed to. Something happened, and the first season they were all stuck on the same, the planet. same planet. They finally yeah. got off, and then they started moving around a little bit more, but large chunks of it would be they'd 
they landed on a planet, they would be there for a long time until they got enough fuel to leave. But they never really explained how the ship had the, 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 the drive, the propulsion to get yeah. from planet to planet. That's funny. Um, I, I guess uh, the, the segue from there is, was there an exploration element to that show and then to further science fiction things that you were into uh, that really struck you or that really appealed to you? So was it that exploration part? For Lost in Space, it was really the robot. So it was, okay. it was the scientific gadgets. They had yep. their lasers, their force fields, their this. And because of the way Lost in Space was shot, very vivid colors, it was attractive to a kid, right? So all these gadgets were cool, the sound effects, um, the monsters and things. That was, that was real exciting. But the exploration came when I discovered Star Trek. So that was got it. Okay. That was that was a little older. So I didn't really watch it first run all the time. I would catch an episode every because they it came out about the same time as Lost in Space. In fact, CBS rejected Lost in uh, re rejected Star Trek in favor of Lost in Space. Right. And then uh, it was Desilu Studios that picked up picked up Star Trek and and then they sold it to NBC. But um, so it was Star Trek that started the exploration phase. And then I was watching other shows like Ultraman, where it was space alien. So my science fiction tastes quickly uh, went uh, into the idea of space exploration, rockets, that sort of science fiction. And it wasn't until I was older that I became more interested in science fiction of the mind, thoughts, really oddball stories. When it comes to exploration, I was reading this stat last night as I was researching for, for this episode. 4,000 exoplanets confirmed mm -hmm. as, as of this point. So using the Kepler right. uh, telescope and a couple of others, they've uh, gone through and found all of those. All I can think of like when I hear that is not that I'm, I'm scared of what might come from those planets. There, there might be aliens there and I'm threatened by them. Is How do I get there? Mm -hmm. right, is how do I visit as many of those 4,000 planets? It's impossible. It's not going to happen in my lifetime. But that's exactly what I think of when I hear that, when sort of this science fiction kind of bleeds with the reality of the situation. What do you think of or what do you feel when you hear that 4,000 exoplanet? Or if they're describing one of the exoplanets, like this one is always pink because of the uh, the the materials in the atmosphere, the different chemicals and minerals and such. Or there's one that, you know, there's uh, winds of 5,400 miles an hour and it rains glass sideways when they're describing these planets. Or maybe even when you read one about one in, in one of the books you're reading. What do you feel? What's the draw there for you? Well, like you, I would love to know details about the planets, right? Yeah. And I'm thinking that we... You know why? Why you have you have folks, very wealthy folks, that are putting together their space programs for low Earth orbit space tourism. I'm thinking, why, why doesn't you know Paul Allen or Elon Musk? Well, Elon Musk is getting closer, or you know Branson with his uh, Virgin Galactic um, tourism business. You know, start launching some really long range things because there is technology in terms of nano probes with light sails that could actually, you know, shoot a laser, blow these probes out and get there, you know, within the next, get there, closer stars within the next, you know, five, 10 years and then start broadcasting information back. So maybe within 15, 20 years, we could actually get data from other solar systems. Know a little bit more about them. But, yeah. I, you know, I, there's not a lot of profitability in that. I don't know. So 
maybe you know, I, I suppose I can make my billions and do it myself is what somebody would tell me. But If you could go ahead and do that, that would be great. That, that would be. But I would love to know what those planets are like. There are planets that um, we think are in the green zone, the habitable area for yep. life as we've defined life. Uh, I think one of the closest planets is um, about 12 light years away. Tau Ceti is uh, they they think it's in the green zone, and um, there might be a couple in there. And then we're we're putting some telescopes up into space. James Webb is is going up shortly. Um, my sister is working on that, and it's really cool. She took me to the facility where they were building it, and all I could do was make jokes about tripping into the mirrors. But uh, you know, so. Um, so my thinking is at some point we'll actually have telescopes that have some optical capability to resolve down to some level of detail. Right. You know, no, maybe the way more. Exactly. So maybe the images that we get of the planets within our solar system will be able to start getting images like that of planets in some of the closer, you know, outside solar systems. And I think I think ET is at the door. It might be. It might be uh the men in black actually. <laughs> Trying to tell oh, us yeah. that we're getting too close to the uh, to the theme. If I start forgetting what I was going to say, I'll, I'll know <laughs> what happened. Very nice. Well, let's take a break and see who is at the door. All right. And uh, thank you so much, Hap. We'll go from there. So we'll be talking science fiction all morning and playing some music uh, that is a little bit like that. So this is from a band uh, named, uh, let's see, Devada Don. I'm sorry, a person named Devada Don. It is... Uh, in my room on WPRK because that's generally where we listen to or watch sci-fi and things like that and read sci-fi. You're listening to Odd Numbers on WPRK, Winter Park, Florida. Opera times call for opera measures. That's not a pun that I'll be using again. Opera del Sol hosts interesting and innovative events around Orlando to get people interested in the art form. In April, check out their free collaborative music festival featuring cool performances from Central Florida's top opera singers, topra singers, if you will. Along with the music, there's gonna be visual art, a market, and food trucks. It's free, and if you wanna upgrade your seating and support the organization at the same time, 20 measly dollars gets you a VIP seat, one drink ticket, and an event swag bag. April 14th, Starting at noon, visit operadelsoul.org for more information and follow them on Facebook. Davida Don on WPRK, Winter Park, Florida, from the new album. It's actually a new EP called Pi Louise that is in my room. Good morning. My name is Nick. I'm here with my special guest, Hap Aziz. Good morning, Hap. Good morning, Nick. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Back to the show uh, again, back to WPRK. Hap has come in and is doing another uh, episode. But instead of doing a full interview, uh, we're talking about science fiction today. And the reason I played In My Room is because that's where most of my science fiction was read, consumed, especially growing up, it was read for the most part. Obviously, I went to movies, watched TV shows when applicable, but a lot of time spent on comic books and other things in my room. So I guess one of my big questions I had, thinking about the Marvel movies and the comic book movies that have come out over the last 10 years, those don't strike me with the exception of Guardians of the Galaxy as 
what I would consider science fiction, what I would consider true science fiction, but they are. Superheroes, comic books, 100% science fiction because it's science-based to an extent, and it is fiction. But there's something, there's a purity to me of science fiction. When I think of science fiction, it is generally in space. There's some sort of exploration component. Um, doesn't have to have a, a computer. doesn't have to have aliens. But there's, it's, it's out there, right? Is there something like that? Is there a bias for you when it comes to... Uh, science fiction that it's only this or this is real science fiction and then everything else is kind of sort of science fiction so there's there's the bias there's the science fiction that we like and then there's the science fiction definition sure so the the traditional definition that most of the science fiction authors from the 40s through 60s the folks like heinlein or asimov or arthur clark they'll they'll say that science fiction is generally a single fantastic idea but it's plausible from a science standpoint. So the only thing you have to suspend your disbelief on is that one idea. And so what that means is is it doesn't have to be about space, about aliens, about any of these big science fiction ideas that make for wonderful spectacle on the screen, which I love. But science fiction, a a story that really was um, uh, meaningful to me, which didn't have anything to do with any of these fantastic ideas, was a story called Dying Inside by Robert Silverberg. And it was about this um, youngish man, young compared to me. I think he was in his uh, maybe early 30s, possibly late 20s. But he was sort of a washout in life. Mm. And he had, he had the ability to read people's minds. And that was, that was the only science fiction element in it. But it was about his sad, sad life, that he never capitalized on his own particular talent. And the... the the book itself opens up from a scene where he's essentially writing papers for college students and um, he's selling it to the college students and that's how he's making his, his living. So he, there, uh, there was an athlete that asked for a paper for him to write and what he would do is, is he would meet with the student and he would scan their mind to get an idea of their voice. So he would write a paper that was plausible for them to have written and um, but with a passing grade, so at oh, least wow. to see. And so the the football player actually beat him up because he wanted an A, and he was trying to. The the main character is trying to explain, you couldn't get an A, but I got you a C, so you passed the course. And you know, and so that was his life. And and it was really a story of him. Come to think of it, he was he was closer to his forties. He was starting to lose this ability. So it was like a person who ages that's losing their sight or their hearing, only it was his extrasensory perception. And then it was about his relationship with his sister. And when he met his sister, who was younger than him, she was just a baby, and he was about five years old, and he it was the only time in his life he tried to do something with his mind, projecting rather than reading a mind, and he really focused and tried to kill his sister in the crib. And something, she somehow felt that, and he wasn't successful, but because of that, they had a really rocky relationship. And at the end of the book, she sneaks up behind him and scares him. And then she was just delighted because for the first time in their lives, he didn't know she was coming. So that was the entirety of the story. It was just a really little personal um, personal study about this man and his, yeah. his ability that he's losing. But that was wonderful science fiction. Not a single laser, rocket, robot, alien in it. Well, I think that's the uh, that's one of the components of really good science fiction is you have whatever it is. So there are all these people on the spaceship, or mm-hmm. this is happening. But 
it's really the character studies. It's really mm-hmm. the uh, conf- confrontations right. and other interactions between the people that make for a great science fiction, mostly book, but also that can be in the other uh, in the other genres as well. So whether that's a movie or a TV show or anything else. Right. Early science fiction, so for the first half of the 20th century, from H.G. Wells um, on up to the 1950s, was very much focused on technology or the big idea, right? The, the invasion from Mars, that's mm-hmm. the big idea, or colonization, or robots that gain their own intelligence and take over. So that was what science fiction was focused on and to the exclusion almost of character development. And so for a long time, science fiction wasn't taken seriously as a form of literature, but people that had imaginations and were thinking about these sorts of things, whether they were inventors or just people that liked to dream, they loved that sort of story. And so they devoured that and and really kept science fiction moving along as a genre until authors of science fiction were were really more interested or just as interested in developing character as they were the big idea. You have the near future stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm thinking of, I think it was Neil Stevenson who just wrote, this was a couple years ago, um, Seven Eves, uh, which was really good in sort of a... um, uh, apocalyptic look at what might happen if the moon suddenly broke apart. Right. And so everybody, they threw people into space and then what would happen, you know, in that case, um, as opposed to the fantastical, you know, galaxy far, far away, star Wars and things like that. So it's, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up with the, the moon breaking apart. Larry Niven had a story, um, inconsistent moon about the sun going Nova and people at night seeing the moon getting brighter, wondering, you know, hey, that's interesting. The moon is getting brighter, realizing that on the other side of the earth, it was being scorched as the sun was going nova. But um, old, pre-1950s science fiction would have been about the major players, the scientists that were going to save the planet because the moon was breaking apart. More modern science fiction, you could pick a story about a family that's just trying to survive as the moon is breaking apart. They have nothing to do with this narrative of saving humanity. They're just trying to save their own skins. And that's what's interesting to people now. You know, well, from a sort of a heroic perspective Mm -hmm. is what the 50s or what early science fiction to me wanted was something to save the day. Right. As opposed to now where we're almost, the the apocalypse is going to happen. Let's tell the stories leading up to that, or let's tell the stories after that, or something along those lines. Is that what you found in your own reading and your own uh, view of science fiction? Yes, and I think it was tied to the optimism of having won World War II and the optimism leading into the 60s, the early 60s especially, of where we could do anything. We as, uh, we as a race, a people, mm-hmm. certainly the United States, a lot of science fiction is very American-centric or United States-centric. Uh, not to say there isn't great science fiction coming out from other parts sure. of the world, but uh, it it is interesting if you look at Stanislaw Lem, I believe um, I believe that's the name. He's a Russian author, and his science fiction is much more dour. You know, much more like you picture Russians in the cold of a Siberian winter saying, "Well, this kind of stinks," and so life is is very bleak from that perspective. And his science fiction is like that. Um, then, then, of course, if you think about the more campy Japanese science fiction, the, the, um, the, the psychobabble surrounding that is, oh, it's a result of the nuclear, nuclear, you know, dropping the bomb, the atom bomb, yep. and, 
you know, waking up the beast exactly and, yeah. so those those types of things but science fiction was very optimistic and now i think that people are if not pessimistic about life more jaded about the the um uh, you know the the people who would supposedly rescue us the general population has a great distrust for them politicians scientists we you know we don't li- Anti-vaccination, for example, is is one form of saying we don't trust you, scientists. Right. You know, and so and certainly there's no trust for politicians across the you board. You don't have our best interests in mind. And and we're having trouble. Even the even this um, uh, the story now about the parents cheating to get the students into uh, the the colleges and universities. That's talking about an institution that one would have thought as being very admired higher education now there's lack of trust somewhere in there not not to say necessarily directly related to the institutions but certainly the surrounding people sure yeah interesting um because science fiction to me was always very hopeful um and even that seven eve story that i was describing earlier there's still a jump to the future not to give too much away of what eventually happens to the human race when it has to escape the planet and it might be able to return to it after it becomes habitable again. And so there, there was an element of that classic science fiction to it. It's not the one that you would want where everybody survives, right? but it is a survival story. It is a, the species continues, the race continues, everybody um, you know, has a future to an extent. Right. I mean, there there are the post, um, you know, post-World War nuclear holocaust science fiction stories where everybody who is in the story has gotten through that horrific event only to die at the end of that. And that's fairly depressing. And while there are those stories, I don't know that a large swath of the population likes to consume them for a longer term. People still like optimism. Mm-hmm. That's life is sort of a story of optimism. So we'd like to see stories of people overcoming. Now there are the cautionary tales, the the stories, the Twilight Zone sort of stories. Which, by the way, Twilight Zone is uh, a new Twilight Zone series is coming it's out this coming year. Soon, yeah. Should be interesting. And, and so those cautionary tales are nice because we're only having to consume them on a on a very limited scale. We're not following. Um, a cast of characters year after year in a in a television series or movie series, or we're not reading um, installment or book after book of just people going downhill, which just would get burdensome. But something like the Twilight Zone, where for thirty minutes, sixty minutes, you can sit, and even if it doesn't have a happy ending, you can sort of say, "Well, I'm glad that wasn't me," you know. Well, and here's what I learned from that right. as well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So Twilight Zone for you is science fiction? Would you consider that? Well, there are science fiction episodes of the Twilight Stories, Zone. Stories, yeah. So the, the episodes where a character is talking to death, trying to cheat death, or mm-hmm. is talking to the devil, making a bargain with the devil, it's not, that's really more fantasy. That's not science fiction. But there are episodes where the characters go to Mars and encounter life on Mars and, you know, or encounter aliens or maybe they flip the story where we see the story from the aliens perspective encountering humans. That's all science fiction. Yes. Would you get on a ship right now? I know I'm changing subjects, but I was just always curious about that. Even learning uh, during the space shuttle days, the number of things that could go wrong, the number of critical uh items or processes on a ship like that 
Uh, so around 1,500 critical one items, I think they call them. Right. Uh, so 1,500 on launch and 1,000 when you're in space. Basically, if any of those things happen or go wrong, the ship and the crew are lost. I would still go on it at any given moment. You know, as much as I'd want to be one of the first people on Virgin Galactic or any of the SpaceX's uh, uh, tourism model, um, I would still go at any given point. Would you? I'm there. Just okay. Sign me up. Give me give me the ticket. I I think that you know any human endeavor has some element of risk, so it's always a, a risk balance. Now, if if there were a rocket that had a um, 23 percent success rate, and they said, "Would you want to get on that?" I'd say, "No, no, I might pass. maybe wait for maybe version two. You know, and I don't know what my number is. Would I go if it's a 50-50 chance? Maybe if 70 percent chance of success, getting closer." But um, with the, I don't know what the odds are of, of um, successful launches now, but they seem pretty high. Mm. seems fairly reliable. You know, I'd get on uh, a Dragon capsule. That would be fine by me. And I'd get on Vir- one of Virgin Galactic's ships. I'm m- maybe not the very first passenger, but that would be something I'd like to do. I like that you're a, an early adopter for almost everything else but space travel. <laughs> That's I'm smart. A, I'm a I'm a fairly early adopter, but now I'm I've uh, you know now I have to think about a family and I think about my own sure. mortality and then all the other um, components of space travel are also interesting me to interesting to me the the technology behind it. So I'm yeah. happy watching launches, contributing in some way. That's fun. What is the next step for you in terms of uh, science fiction and what you're reading or what you're doing? Is there something that you specifically wanted to watch have you ever wanted to write a science fiction story or explore that topic somehow well actually i i have written i've never published a science fiction story i've my my publishing has always been nonfiction articles uh, com, uh, of computers mm-hmm. um, i published some poetry in fact i my the first poem i ever published was with a rollins publication when i was a student here many many years ago but um i'm, I'm working on a science fiction novel now and um, it's, it's about um, near planets that we can actually get to just a few light years away. I mentioned Tosetti, and it's because I'm researching that for the, for the story. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the premise of the story, without giving anything away, because I'll probably never finish it, is that um, we get out to space, we find a habitable planet, and there is something going on in this planet that the planet was actually genetically engineered, but nobody knows this. And it was engineered in such a way that the plants would um, destroy life at a certain level of intelligence in order to keep it pristine for um, um, just regular animals that don't go and build a lot of structures. And we found that out by getting infected by this device. And then Earth decides to quarantine the colony because it's not going to let anybody back. So then there's stories that revolve around that event. Oh, neat. I like that. So, yeah, I, I want to read that now. Okay, well then maybe you know I'll write it someday. Good, good, good. good. Now that you've uh, heard now me that say, I, yes, yes. now that you know you have at least one fan Out, outside of my own family. <laughs> well, let's leave it at that for now. Why don't we listen to another song? We have uh, actually this is a new album from Edie Brickell and the New Bohemians, uh, Superhero. Very nice. Because I felt like that would be appropriate, and we'll talk a little bit more about comic books science fiction and other things with Hapazis, my very special guest today. You're listening to Odd Numbers. My name is Nick and this is WPRK, Winter Park, Florida.
Friday night. Do you know where your kitchen is? That made more sense in my head. Billy and the Commodore are two fine young musicians who make up the band The Kitchen Killers. They were on the radio with me back in January, and if you missed that, you can experience them multiple times a week on their Facebook page. They sing, they cook, they joke. Well, they don't cook, they eat. Other people cook, generally. It's a great time. They will come to your house for a free Friday night concert experience. Yes, I said free. I also said Friday, right? Friday is important because that's when they do it. It's a great time for the guests. It's good music. They can provide a cook if you need. And it's free. And Friday. I never know if I mention these things. Check them out. Follow them on Facebook at Kitchen Killers, K-I-L-L-A-Z, and book them for a gig. Back to the show. Annie Burkell and the New Bohemians from their new album, Rocket. That was Superhero. Good morning. My name is Nick. Could not think of a more appropriate song to play this morning as we talk about science fiction. Hap Aziz is here. Hap is back on the show. Good morning, Hap. Good morning, Nick. It's good to be back. Thank you for coming back. Uh, It was probably around 2017, like late 2017, that you came on the show the first time. And we did an interview. We learned a lot more about you and your interest in artificial intelligence and technology. We talked drones because those were a hot topic at the time. So it may have even been in 2016 that you came on. Um, We're dating ourselves here. And uh, yeah, and so today thought it was a natural progression to talk about science fiction and some of the things that uh, have happened, that are happening, that we were interested in science fiction, as I mentioned earlier. And if you missed any of the show, please subscribe and you will hear the entirety of the show when it's up later this week or early next week. Um, You know, there's a lot of tropes in there in science fiction that if you read it, if you watch it, if you even listen to it, um, you know, docudramas and especially on the BBC, like Hitchhiker's Guide and Doctor Who and things like that, uh, that you hear again and again. So things like the hive mind or uh, multiverses and things of that nature. Were there any that struck you or any that, you know, you saw again and again, whether it was that or AI is becoming sentient um, is obviously a topic that uh, was big in the last 10, 15, 20 years, if for no other reason to make us scared of Amazon and Google, thankfully. And uh, were there any tropes for you that really stuck out that you, like when you picked up a book and realized that was going to be a part of it, you were like, oh, good, I, I or a movie or something like that. I want to consume this more now that I know that this is part of it. Well, the, the sentient AI, that's probably my favorite trope. Yeah. And that's, again, that goes back to my fondness for the robot on Lost in Space. Um, my least favorite has been time travel because that's so difficult to do well. And if stories are crafted around time travel, they can be excellent. Uh, the, the first Terminator movie was a, a well-crafted story. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, if um, and, and many Doctor Who episodes since, you know, the, the TARDIS is a, time and space traveling device they they actually work fairly well because they think about it ahead of time but in a lot of stories that that graft time travel uh, i think star trek is one of the franchises that often uses time travel that i think doesn't work um a lot of uh use of technology for example the idea of um replicating um things using nanotechnology Mm -hmm. that's interesting 
to me, especially in, uh, in the instances when stories have weaponized nanotechnology, where alien races invade the Earth not by giant spaceships, but maybe a single meteor hits the, hits the Earth and it had a nanotech manufacturing capability where it just basically mines our own planet to build the instruments of our destruction. That's interesting to me. Um, alien invasions, those are fun popcorn-type stories yeah. or movies, but I don't take them seriously. Um, a, a lot because I'm biased by what Carl Sagan said about aliens encountering us, that if, if aliens could get their act together to get into space, which is a big lift for, um, for a civilization, and then get out of their own solar system to another solar system, they will have learned to cooperate and, you know, it's, it's not like they're going to be building starships and everything for um, invasion because if they have that type of technology, they probably have the technology to make all the water they want, all the, you know, that sort of thing. And so stories where aliens are coming to Earth to steal our water, that makes no sense because they could get hydrogen and oxygen out of space if they have to to create their own water. So. Those types well, there's of so many water planets out there that we're finding now, again, yes, going back well, to the exoplanets. The ice that's just floating around uh, in the Oort cloud yeah. outside our, you know, right at the edge of our solar system. It's just too much water to have to go to another star to steal it from somebody. So it's very conceited of us to think that someone's going to come all the way here just to steal our stuff. Yeah, and, we, and, and as far as um, our location in the Milky Way, we're sort of on the outer, outer edges. You know, we're not really in the thick of things. So there's probably a thriving, you know, multi-alien culture civilizations happening closer to the center, but we're just out here in the backwoods. What about us guys? Yeah. I like the idea of us putting one of those giant, the uh, doorbell cameras that they make now, the wireless ones. Yes. Just putting a giant one of those on the moon and just making sure, like, if anybody uh, rings the bell, we can take a look at, exactly. at, at who that is. See where it's coming. I, that was... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, there was a, a video game that I played many, many years ago, and they did a little video trailer for their what the storyline was. And um, it was interesting because we had sent some probes to Mars, and we found that aliens had already been to Mars because they were, you know, looking in our probe lenses. And, you know, it was not a, a pleasant activity. <laughs> Very nice. Um, thinking about tropes, I, I would be remiss to not mention the show because of what it's meant to pop culture and to, to an extent what it's meant to me because I find it really a fascinating study of science fiction and that's Rick and Morty. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you've ever watched yes. that. So um, the crass humor aside, which we can't really mention on the air, but right. it is part of the show, uh, they take on a lot of those tropes. Uh, and the one that struck me uh, because of my uh, fondness for Star Trek and for both Next Generation, the original show, uh, pretty much any of the universes is sort of the hive mind. Right. So in Rick and Morty, the way they took that on was there was this sort of um, uh, benevolent hive mind that was on a planet that goes from planet to planet that helps the culture and helps the society uh, grow and not fight and do those things. And then there was another one that was more like the Borg. Right. That I think was voiced by Patton Oswalt. Yes. Uh, and what was funny to me is the Patton Oswalt hive mind wanted to date the other hive mind. So it actually became this love triangle between Rick, one of the main characters, and the first hive mind, and the second hive mind that wanted to, uh, uh, to date or hook up with the other hive mind. I just thought that was such an elegant way of handling it. Silly, yes. 
um, kind of ridiculous, but in a way to address the hive mind situation and to take that topic on, it just killed me. Did you watch that episode? I did not watch that episode, but thinking of hive minds and thinking about dating hive minds, one of the things that you're touching on is the marriage between science fiction and comedy, yes. which has really been fruitful from a creative perspective over the years for a lot of different franchises, a lot of different IP. You know, um, it's, it's, it works well because both um, science fiction and comedy rely on the combination of ideas that people don't um, think about often. Comedy is great when a comedian puts together two different thoughts and we think, hey, wow, I didn't think of it that way. That's mm -hmm. what makes comedy work, but that's also an essential piece of science fiction. Well, because of the absurdity of it, mm -hmm. right? Sometimes the absurdity of it makes it funny. Yes. Um, and you put them in this situation where they wouldn't normally get to. It's the, you know, it, you've, you, you mentioned um, Frank Herbert, you mentioned the Dune properties, and you mentioned Orson Scott Card, and, and both of them... Um, had stories that were hive mind based. Uh, uh, Frank Herbert wrote a book called Hellstrom's Hive, which was about a human hive mind, a human colony. And um, in, in Ender's Game, the alien race was a hive mind race. Yep, insect based right. sort of was the closest it's approximation. Yeah. Basically, it means that a lot of science fiction authors spent time looking at ants and other insect colonies and saying, you know, what if we encountered alien races that thought that way or you know, or somebody tried to, to create humans to be more hive-mindish. A lot of science fiction is around the idea of an AI taking over people's minds and then, in, in effect, creating a hive-mind society. And that's something that some folks might argue is what's happening with our, our mobile devices and the Internet. From a, you know, our addiction to it, the need for the screen time, and those just, sorts of things. Just wait till we embed that little... Instead of having our cell phone, we'll embed something into our uh, into our brain or attached to our spinal column, and then the next thing you know, the you know Alexa will be telling us you know what to buy at Amazon all the time instead of the other way around. Where to go? Yes, I'm I'm mm, if it could tell me to do other things too, I don't know that I'd be fully against that. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. So. Um, it, Going back to the idea of AIs, we're going to have competing AIs. So a lot of stories, um, I think it was Colossus, the Forbin project from 19, late 1960s. It was about an American supercomputer that we gave the keys to the nuclear arsenal to, and it took over, and it basically, you know, it, it held us hostage with our own nuclear weapons, saying, if you don't do what I say, I'm going to start blowing up cities, and you won't like that. Um, so the, the idea in science fiction is it's usually been one AI that takes over everything, but really we're going to have competing AIs, right? And they may date because, you know, that's what they'll want to do. They'll get caught up in, in soap opera-esque stories of their own. Well, that's what I'm hoping. If Google and, uh, you know, the Uber AI that's going to be, you know, just driving the cars and Alexa and all of them really Siri get together um, and they want to take over, they're going to have to fight each other first. And now while that, because of the relative intelligence of all of those supercomputers and things, may only take a few seconds, that's a few seconds that'll give us a head start to escape. Not right. really, we won't no. <laughs> think of that. Unless they ignore us as we tend to ignore ants, then you know, we don't have much, <laughs> of hope, much hope. That would be very, very neat. What about the, okay, so you mentioned time travel. That's another big sticking point for me, and I agree wholeheartedly that Star Trek... Um, in the movies and in the TV shows, 
uh, used it a little too much. Mm-hmm. Although I think Star Trek: The Next Generation, the the uh, finale, 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 right? Uh, finale. Yes. Finale. The, uh, the last episode. The last episode yes. used it fairly well. Yes, that was that was a good one. I like. But that. it wasn't so much time travel as you know the sort of existence of the same person in the same space and right. all of those things that were really interesting. Um, but what about multiverses? What about this idea that uh, you know the the Spider-Man movie, right. which just came out, which was excellent, and I would recommend to anybody one of the best superhero movies um, ever, um, and certainly in a long time. So, what do you think about the multiverse uh, aspect to science fiction if they go with that route? So that's that can be hit or miss. And what's interesting is um, multiverse stories from a narrative perspective are difficult because if, uh, say you have a story where you've got three versions of a character from three different um, multiverses or verses, universes within multiverses mm-hmm. or whatever the, the proper term is, people from a narrative perspective are going to become attached to one of the characters and they're not necessarily interchangeable, yet from a narrative perspective, authors often interchange them and, um, and take actions that cause spin-off characters. And a lot of that is related back to um, time travel. So if you look at the, the reboot Star Trek movies, what happened was is there was the Star Trek universe, and people were accustomed to the characters and the stories, and they loved that, and it was pretty much a linear timeline mm-hmm. until an event happened that sent, um, sent certain characters back in time and changed history, and so all those characters and stories that people fell in love with were changed. And you could argue that, well, they weren't even actually the same people anymore. We're now in a different universe, right? you know, in an alternate timeline is what, what people will call it. And so we're following different stories. And then so there's argument now. Well, which timeline do we like? We like the characters in this timeline. Why is that which timeline version of okay? Kirk, which Right, version exactly. Of, yeah. and, and then fans even get more um, persnickety. And if something is happening because of production, television or movie production changing, that you know, if you if you look at a modern day version of Star Trek and you compare it to the 1960s version, the technology is obviously different because Slightly. production was different. Yeah. But now they'll say, well, the reason that is is because we're in a different timeline, and and so people can't get over the fact that well, just it's it's a TV show. Just, we don't have to know, explain everything you know, away. You, and that's where you suspend your disbelief. Right. And okay, so if you accept that space travel is possible and this is the future and you know, an idyllic future in many ways. Uh, Star Trek, for many, I think, is, uh, you know, they're a fan of it because it is a, it's a, it's a future that is as close to utopian as humans will probably get, right? Right. So we're living not only with other alien species, but everyone or most of the humans pretty much agree right. with each other. And so we've gone beyond a lot of the conflicts that... Uh, uh, and if you read the Star Trek history, right, there's a the, lot of conflict. It's but. the Rodney King approach. Yeah. Everybody's getting along. So the, the interesting thing is multiverses and time travel can be related. And I've had this thought that there is actually no such thing as time travel, that not only are there in, infinite universes, but they're infinitely different in their position relative to each other in time. In other words... If I step laterally across to a different universe, I could be stepping into my own future or my own past, but I'm not time traveling. 
I'm, I'm along the same line of time. Right. It's just that all the different universes booted up or at, at different times. At different so times, yes. yeah. Interesting. I like that. And that's another place we can steal resources. We don't have to travel. We could just steal resources from the other multiverses. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Which is yet another trope on uh, uh, Rick and Morty. Well, uh, so Hap, we're at the end of the first hour already. Wow, that time we have been time traveling. Yes, we have been. Time goes faster in certain places, and right. this is one of them. When you get to talk to me, basically. That's it. Uh, so Hap Aziz, you can find more about Hap at Hap Aziz A Z I Z H A P A Z I Z dot WordPress dot com. That's your blog, uh, and you can learn more about the projects that you're working on, the things that you're doing, reading, etc. Sure. Uh, over there. Uh, so we're going to take a break. We're going to play a song here. Uh, this seemed appropriate by a band named Idress from the new album Sensitive G. This is Xenophobic on WPRK, Winter Park, Florida. You're listening to Odd Numbers. This episode was recorded live on March 4th, 2019 on WPRK 91.5 FM. You won't find a better college radio station anywhere. And I'm not just saying that because I'm on it. It's college radio. You're going to hear stuff you wouldn't normally hear anywhere else and things that you haven't heard in a while. It's all volunteer-based, so you've got people who are passionate about what they do and the type of music and talk they're bringing to the airwaves. And you can stream it anywhere you want. Just go to WPRK.org. You don't have to be on a radio or radio type of device to listen. There's always something interesting happening, so listen early and often. How to Dress Well on WPRK, Warner Park, Florida, from the brand new album, The Ante Room. That was Vacant Boat. Before the break, we heard from Idress from their new album, Sensitive. Xenophobic was the name of the song. Good morning. My name is Nick. Uh, picking some songs this morning to go with our theme of science fiction. I have a special guest on that note. Hap Aziz is here. Good morning, Hap. Good morning, Nick. As I move around with the noisiest chair in the world. Hap, um, we've talked about a couple of different things. So tropes of science fiction, the exploration aspect of it, how we came to start reading science fiction. So uh, if anybody has missed anything uh, you can listen to this at toacertaindegree.com, or you could just sub subscribe to To A Certain Degree. Oh, man, I didn't think this through when I named the show. <laughs> uh, to A Certain Degree. Um, Hap is back after being on the regular episode and doing an interview with me. Uh, so now we're talking about things of that nature. Let's talk about ships for yes. a second. So one of, I, I think what's nice about talking to people who... Uh, read a particular um, genre that you're passionate about, whether that's romance novels or science fiction or sci-fi romance novels, which is something we should right. maybe look at, is uh, you can compare notes on uh, certain aspects of things. And maybe you learn about something new or a new author or something along those lines. So when I was thinking about ships, you know, we have some great names. We have some great ships out there, whether it's the Millennium Falcon or the TARDIS to an extent, Serenity, I was thinking of The Defiant from Star Trek Deep Space Nine and, of course, The Heart of Gold from Hitchhiker's Guide. Guide. right. One of the writers that really struck me with his ship names was, uh, I, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, if it's Ian or Ian M. Banks. Uh, he's a science fiction writer. He also wrote some 
regular fiction, regular fiction, general fiction under the name Ian Banks. Mm -hmm. Let's just assume that it's Ian. And he had this series of books. They were loosely related to each other because there was this uh, society behind it called the culture, right? Where sentient robots and sentient ships lived along with uh, people or the approximation of people, aliens and, and different things of that nature. And so uh, it was very interesting because the ships and the sentient AIs themselves were incredibly sarcastic. They were funny. They were mean in some cases. They had their own personalities. Well, sarcasm is a sign of intelligence. It Hopefully. Yes. <laughs> I'm really hoping for that. So here are some of the names. I pulled just a few of them. If you ever have a chance, the Culture Series ship names is something you should look up. Uh, so much for subtlety. These are generally uh, their warships, if right. they needed them. Uh, gray Area. Another one was, of course, I Still Love You. So the name of, as the name of a ship is just excellent. You'll Thank Me Later. Frank Exchange of Views. And then the last but not least, uh, Now We Try It My Way. You know, and what strikes me about these names is they're uh, in some ways like the names that uh, racing horses have. They're, they're show names. Yes, so, Very um, much so. And, and I don't know if, I, yeah, I have no idea if, if he was a fan of horse racing, but um, uh, my, my daughter is in horse competitions, and those names are very off the wall like that. And sometimes you see names, especially of people's personal yachts or boats that are unusual like in that, that. way. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think that's where he was uh, pulling that from. Do you have a favorite, if you were going to write some fan fiction about a ship, do you have a favorite that you would want to sort of concentrate on? So, uh, so I look at um, sh historical ships, mm -hmm. and um, I believe it was the Endeavor that was a ship that was um, that had to do with one of the early voyages to take explorers to Antar the Antarctic. Sure. And so I'm actually using that in a in a story of mine and and uh, calling back to the captain of the ship and of the expedition itself. But I you know, I haven't given a lot of thought to ship names. I love the Jupiter 2 from Lost in Space. We'll mm -hmm. keep going back to that. And of course Enterprise is a name that brings tears to my eyes. But the the Heart of Gold was interesting to me because of the the um what was it the improbability drive right, that the they used and drive. yes and so yeah. that that to me was unique and and I think when I read Hitchhiker's Guide that really opened my eyes up to not naming a ship like you know you think of a traditional whatever the the English sailing ship indefatigable yeah, yeah exactly the the Constitution yeah or what those types of names but something a little more poetic and I think that especially on long voyages where you're going to have communities, and a lot of the, the Banks novels are about these huge ships that were that, that cultures, entire peoples lived on. Right. Um, I, you know, when you're going to have a ship with life happening on board, you need a poetic name. It's, you just, you know, having a, having a single word, it just it seems limiting at some point. Something more than that. Um, looking at the designs of ships, do, were you a model builder as a kid or anything yes. like that? Were there ones, um, uh, again, on the sci-fi side or otherwise, that you were like, this is the one for me, this is the one I would own if I could? Um, I used to make copies of the Jupiter II using paper plates and stapling them together and then cutting out the windows and the landing gear. That was easy to make. 
Uh, I really love the idea of the Battlestar Galactica with its runways for the for the little war, the the Vipers that would take off and land from the ship, and yeah. then the reimagined Battlestar Galactica was was always interesting to me. That the reimagined story was interesting because this was a ship that was in mothballs. It wasn't the fleet championship. It was the kind of the junk ship that was a museum. There was probably, you know, vending machines in the in the corridors, sorts of things. I like the idea of the gift shop in there. Exactly. Too, yeah. There was a gift shop by Little Models, and it was recommissioned, and it was the only one that survived um, the initial attack because it didn't have all the networking that the modern ships had so that they weren't able to take it out with cyber warfare mm-hmm. techniques. So that was interesting to me. The, the big Cylon ships that look like um, yo-yos, sideways uh those those were interesting because the the central core was um sensible for where the ships would fly out of the um the steven spielberg alien ship from close encounters of the third kind yes that was i that was unusual to me and they have that model in the um, air and space museum in um that's out in virginia now that was unusual to me because i had no idea what i was looking at it was the first design that I couldn't look at a sec- section cell. Here's the propulsion units. Here's engineering. Here's the bridge. You know, so I I didn't know how to sort of parse that when I when I first came to it. Looking at the actual model that they used in the film, and the model builders took pieces from different model kits right and put it together. Put it together. Yeah. So then then it made a little more sense. But then there were all these little Easter eggs, like there was a little piece of a Volkswagen Beetle on there, and you know, just odd things. You know, here's here's a little tiny model of the Empire State Building that makes it look like one of the spires that's shooting up from the ship, or things like that. That was um, that was interesting to me. I loved the um, I loved the interceptors on the TV show UFO, which I think was out in 1970 for one year. It was a Jerry and Sylvia Anderson production, mm-hmm. and if you're not familiar, it's um, they were master modelers and puppeteers they did the thunderbirds with their super okay, marination yeah, yeah. but the models that they built for these interceptors that that were stationed on the moon to intercept ufos that were coming to infiltrate the earth those were those were just really awesome to me they had these one large missiles on the nose cone so they were like a one shot you know interceptor but they were just the coolest design and um and jerry anderson was one of the early folks that took into consideration that flying through space, you don't need to have an aerodynamic vehicle. And so no, he, that's all you're doing. Right. And yeah. so he had another show that followed up with, uh, followed up UFO it was space 1999. Um, Barbara Bain and Martin Landau starred in that. So, uh, and then there were these Eagle, um, Eagle landers that were on the moon and they were essentially um, pipes with rocket engines in the back and a control a control unit, a control module in the front, but then it looked like, you know, looked like it could have been an 18-wheeler made by, out of pipes that it would carry cargo and stuff, no wings or anything. So that was pretty That was pretty cool. What about the first time watching Star Trek, whenever it was for you, that you saw the board ship for the first time? And for those who haven't seen it, it's a cube. That's yes. it. That's all there is to it. The The... The interesting to me is I was wondering why wouldn't they make it a sphere? If you're if you're going to make some sort of unusual shape that's not aerodynamic because you don't need it, you could make a sphere. But then I was thinking in terms of corridors, a cube makes more sense. It from a space standpoint, that's why we don't have very many 
uh, spheres as buildings, I guess. And if you think about it, our neighborhoods, two-dimensional versions, but neighborhoods, efficient neighborhoods are really blocks. They're yeah. not they're not circles, you know, with radiating from the center. So then when I thought of that, it made a lot of sense to me. There was absolutely no reason for it to have any wings or you know, any, any type of propulsion unit that you would see as separate from the, the, the ship itself. And uh, it, it had a lot of redundant areas. So if one section of the cube was damaged, there were pieces in other sections that could take over those functions. Mm-hmm. So it made sense from, uh, from a, a logical perspective. But as a ship, it was just, it, it, it was ugly. It didn't, oh, have, you know. Aesthetically, it's, like, it's you awful. Know, who wants to build a Borg cube model as a kid? You know, so I get a box from UPS and yeah. paint lines on it or yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. That's what all the Borg children would do. <laughs> That's right. For sure. Yeah, the refrigerator boxes had a whole <laughs> different meaning for them. Um, my favorites were the original Vipers on Battlestar mm-hmm. and then the Snowspeeder from yes. Empire Strikes Back. For some reason, that shape... And, and something about that re- really appealed to me. I did like the X-Wings. I did like the others as well. See, the, the, one of the revolutions that Lucas had when, he, when Star Wars came out was the idea of the, um, the battle-damaged or the dirty or the right. really used vehicle. Not everything so, should be clean right. and perfect and right. pristine. If, if you look at Star Trek, the TV show... First of all, the ship was completely lit up as it's flying through space where there's not a star nearby to light it up. That made no sense, and they corrected that in the movie by putting spotlights that they turned on. Mm. And, um, and then it was just very, it was, it was like they just finished painting it with a gloss white. Mm. You know, and every time, you know, it, it didn't have any pits from little space debris or anything, no rocket burns anywhere from shuttles coming in, nothing. But Lucas's ships, he... He was a model, you know, he worked with model builders. I don't know that he was one personally, but he worked with model builders that, that uh, weathered their models. And, and that was a tradition. If you, if you built aircraft from World War II because you liked those models or tanks or boats, you weathered them. And so there was no reason not to weather models from the, the distant future or distant galaxies. Something about the Millennium Falcon always bothered me it always looked like it was backwards to me that sort of the observation and the the where the cockpit is looked more like an exhaust yes uh, uh sort of pipe or something along those lines so i always when i was a kid up until the time i was like 12 13 i always positioned it backwards or if i was playing with it it would be going backwards so that was an interesting design choice by them um and got me thinking about ships a lot differently when I finally just came to the acceptance. I think it was about when uh, Return of the Jedi came out. I was like, okay, all right, it's, it has to go this way. Right. There, there was a lot of outside-of-the-box thinking with the Millennium Falcon, more so than the other ships, the mm-hmm. X-Wings, the A-Wings. If you look at them, they look like you know, takeoffs on traditional aircraft. But the, the, the Millennium Falcon was, was very unique. Well, let's leave it at that for now. Thank you very much. We're going to play another song. Uh, we're going to play, let's see here. Ah, the Interplanetary Acoustic Team from their album, Me Smiling, uh, 1111, Me Smiling. Uh, you're going to hear a song called, let's see here, uh, number six or number three. Oh, yeah, The Tremble of Quantum Strings. 
That seems appropriate. That, that does. And me smiling sounds like Jar Jar Binks was titling the song. Oh, boy. All right. We're not going to talk about him. Uh, you're listening to Odd Numbers on WPRK, Winter Park, Florida. The To Be Decided is a YouTube channel where hosts Miller and Davis tell some stories, review music, and generally make really, really amazing videos. Miller is also responsible for all the bumper music on this episode. In case you were wondering, check out youtube.com slash the to be decided for more. The Interplanetary Acoustic Team on WPRK, Winter Park, Florida, from their brand new album, 1111 Me Smiling, The Tremble of Quantum Strings. Good morning, my name is Nick. You're listening to Odd Numbers on WPRK. I am here with a very special guest, as I am uh, almost every week for the last three years or so. I've had a guest on on Monday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. Hapaziz is a returning guest. I'm very happy to have him back. And I'm very happy to be here. I invited him back specifically for uh, to talk about, first of all, the lasers and stuff at the end of that song, which was a lot of fun, but also science fiction in general. You are um, a consumer of science fiction, a fan of science fiction. I am. All of the above. So let me ask you about, um, we were talking a little bit about Star Wars and the Millennium Falcon before the break. And if you missed any of the show, you can go to toacertaindegree.com and listen to it there when it's up later this week. Uh, Han Solo and Luke Skywalker. I always wanted to be, there's there's certain stories, especially on the sci-fi side, where you want to be not the main hero, but sort of this secondary character. I always wanted to be Han Solo instead of Luke Skywalker. I and think that's that's typical. Is it? Yes, well, it's... Typical depending on how the main character is written. I think Luke was written too straight up, too goody-goody, too, you know, clean, clear, this is right, this is wrong, my yeah. family was wronged, everything is, the empire is against me, and I'm so earnest. But Han was a, he was a scoundrel. He was a rogue. He was, he had some, some depth to his story. And so a little and more. And he shot first. Yes, 100%. Yes. So I was thinking about it. I did kind of want to be Spock over Kirk. Mm-hmm. And I definitely wanted to be Khan over Kirk. Okay. So that's something to consider if you're going to be my friend. Uh, Morpheus and Trinity. Okay. I would rather be over Neo. Mm-hmm. And then in the fifth element, I, I that one's fairly equal to me. Either Corbin Dallas, Lilu, or the character played by... Uh, Chris Tucker, Ruby Rod. I would be any of those characters. I, I wanted to be the singer. The singer was good? The opera singer? Yes. The Ruby Rod, the Chris Tucker character with the microphone, yes. though, was so Dave. funny. Yeah. Yes. That's exactly who I wanted to be. That was that was a movie that delighted me from start to finish because even though it was very tropey, there was a lot of things that were there that were, you have to collect these five things, you have to get it back, there's this evil that you have to defeat... Um, and that MacGuffin is out there that right. you have to you have to find uh, everything about the story and the way people acted, the technology uh, was handled so well in it, that movie. It was a well constructed story, yeah, and and the performances were entertaining. It was something that was easy to watch because it flowed really well. And um, I, you know, I think back to a lot of Bruce Willis vehicles, science fiction. He's he's one of the 
to me, he's one of the transition actors in that period of time when science fiction went from being campy, led by B-list actors to um, more serious. I mean, there, there are exceptions. Um, Charlton Heston, very early on, was an A-list actor years. playing yeah. in science fiction. But for the most part, you didn't get a lot of what would uh, what you'd consider to be men who could carry a straight-up mainstream movie playing in science fiction. Mm-hmm. Guardians of the Galaxy, the first one, was another one that right. uh, was delightful. And again, you know, thinking about comic book movies as a subset of science fiction, I, it's not necessarily the way my mind works. So I don't necessarily think of Spider-Man when I think of science fiction movies, although technically it's under that right. same... Uh, heading, but Guardians of the Galaxy to me, because it was involving space, it was you know space travel and things of that nature. Um, that was one that really uh, made me happy and surprised me how much I liked it because I was expecting a typical Marvel movie. Not to say that it wasn't formulaic or anything like that, or um, uh, and I definitely don't want to hurt James Gunn's feelings because uh, I know he's a big listener. And now he's back for right. uh, Guardians of the Galaxy right. 3. And he's known for being a sensitive guy. He's very known for being a sensitive guy, right. yes. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that was one that delighted me as well because of the unexpected turns that it took. Yes. Um, so I was wondering if you had that same reaction to Guardians. I did. I was interested in seeing it from the very beginning as it was announced, and I thought the characters themselves were interesting. Marvel has done an extremely good job of developing flawed heroes so and and that's their thing i mean stan lee that was the idea behind spider-man that mm-hmm. you know the peter parker was just this angst-ridden kid not not the star anything kind of the the loser and you know having to deal with deal with his everyday life i mean the first villain spider-man ever fought was just a thug that shot his uncle so um, with, with Guardians of the Galaxy, it was much the same way. This was, um, you know, they were, they were lost for whatever reason. All the different characters were lost, different, different um, motivations, but they came together in their sort of shared, um, shared lostness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they formed a little family, and it, it was very interesting. My wife went to see it. I sort of had to pull her to see it. She wasn't really interested. She was a Marvel fan, but she was like, not another fan. I can't keep up with this. But then <laughs> after seeing it, she had that, that transformation where it was very interesting to her. There is a, um, uh, a hope that I have for the Marvel movies and what I think the DC universe is, is moving towards, which is let's get rid of the MacGuffins for a while. Mm-hmm. We've had 20, we'll have 23 movies now uh, with the new Avengers movie coming out that all kind of had something to do with the Infinity Stones and the Gauntlet and Thanos and all that. Um, Let's move away from that for a while. Let's get uh, MacGuffinless, and I don't know if that's a a phrase we want to put on a T-shirt or anything. It sounds a little bit weird. Uh, If you don't know what a MacGuffin is, it's that whatever it is in the movie that everybody's working towards, that thing that's going to solve the problem or that, uh, uh, you know, that item. Um, but I would like that because I think the first Ant-Man uh, did that where I don't think that had anything to do with uh, moving the story forward in terms of the um, the Infinity Stones or the characters or anything like that. Right. It was just a little bit of a character study in this sort of uh, alternate hero uh, universe or alternate hero type of character. Um, so I'd like to see that for a while. Is there anything you want to see 
having been a comic book reader for so long and I, I think in general enjoying the comic book movie universes that they're creating. Well, the, there's, a, there's a fork in the road between when you're when you're telling stories and i think some of the comics in the late 90s some of the marvel comics suffered from this which was they kept trying to tell stories to outdo the previous story and so oh, they had to be bigger they, they, yeah right? the Every villains time. were bigger the stakes were higher so how do you come back from that if you save the universe from thanos what's the story that you're going to tell next that's as interesting or as compelling you save the multiverse from a bigger Thanos. So um, getting back to the more personal stories, and I think with the Spider-Man stories, mm -hmm. you know, he's, he's fighting a neighborhood villain, but the stakes are high because it's emotional to him. It, it involves people that he loves, that sort of thing. That can work. And even, even for superheroes like Captain America or Thor or Iron Man, you can have more personal stories where there's a lot more at stake for them, not necessarily for the universe, but for them, and they can they can lose things that are dear to them. Thor lost Asgard as a planet, the, the home world, mm -hmm. and then and then I, I don't know. Spoiler alert, right? And then lost basically all of all of his people. So that's something you can do without having to um, risk the entire universe and try to tell bigger and harder and you know just larger stories. If the comic book community is listening, that's of course sage advice, and you know they usually are. They're yes, usually yeah. up this early, right? And especially with Stan now having passed on, yep. they need some other voice of reason to listen to, and it might as well be me. It sounds great. And that's my science fiction contribution there, that anybody would listen to me. Would you uh, be willing to do the um, uh, cameos in all the movies? Why, certainly. I think, and I think I kind of look like Stan Lee, actually. A little bit. Yeah, I have two eyes, a nose. That's about it. There are those similarities right there. Uh, Hap Aziz, we can learn more about you at hapaziz.wordpress.com. That's H-A-P-A-Z-I-Z.wordpress.com. Are you working on anything uh, specific, uh, science fiction or otherwise? You mentioned a story that you're working on, a book that you're working on earlier. Right. Just if, you know, from a career perspective, I work on learning and the gamification of learning and the uh, and the uh, integration of narrative into learning activities to increase engagement. But it's this idea that people learn when we play or when we tell stories. So that's sort of the focus of my life. And then I do want to mention, if anybody goes to my website, you will see exactly how much I look like Stan Lee. Oh, that's a good point. Right. Yeah, so I think I, I Find posted, a picture of me on there. Yeah. We'll, we'll put that out yeah. there as well, just the, the similarities between you and Stan Lee. Let's listen to a song right now. This is brand new. All the music we've been playing is brand new this morning. Uh, Rookin is the name of the band. This is Goodbye, Louisiana. It seemed appropriate because, you know, if you're leaving the planet, you're going to be saying goodbye to all of the states. Right. That's a tradition that most of the astronauts, I think, take part in, where they say goodbye to all of the states. So they're going into space, and when they come back, they say hello they to, say to hello. all of the states. That's right. When they're coming back. It used to be you have to do the state capitals as well, but nobody memorizes that anymore. Right, but that's a good reason to learn the states in school because if you don't, you'll never be an astronaut. You'll never be able to go to space. Mm -hmm. How else can you say goodbye and hello to all the states if you're going uh, out there and coming back? Uh, so that's working on WPRK, Winter Park, Florida. You're listening to A Certain Degree. If you live in central Orlando, 
you may already receive the Downtown Orlando Community Paper. If not, it's available at any number of local merchants and online at otownpaper.com. One reason you may want to check it out, I write for it. I got to dig into Sac Comedy Lab's classes and the Sam Flax Wall Project, talk to a bunch of people who have gone through the classes, talk to some of the artists who are participating in the Wall Project and the people at Sam Flax on why that happens. I got to speak with Orlando's Poet Laureate, Susan Lilly, and the new Chief of Police, Orlando Rolon. Guess what? A lot of other great writers and good info about what's going on in the downtown area. Otownpaper.com. Or, if you like the feel of newsprint in your hot little hands, pick it up. And that was most of Rookin'. Uh, or the band Rookin for, with their song Goodbye Louisiana from their album Unionism. Sorry about that, a little scratchy uh, CD technology that we have here. It's ironic that we're talking about science fiction this morning. Good morning, my name is Nick. The topic is science fiction. The guest is Hap Aziz on Odd Numbers this morning. Good morning, Hap. Good morning, Nick. I'm going to release you back out into the world in a little bit, but first we've got a couple of other things to talk about. Um, one thing that I wanted to get your perspective on, as you mentioned in the last break, you are um, about sort of the intersection of learning and technology, how to bring in the narrative when it comes to learning. Uh, this didn't happen for me when I was in school, but I'm reading more and more about it now where they're incorporating science fiction and they're incorporating comic books into literature class uh, classes right. and things of that nature. Um, do you feel like, or is there anything that you've read that you feel like would have been beneficial, could have been taught in school, could have helped uh, show people how to write a story, how to produce something, or otherwise teach them something? You know, one of the things that I did when I was a kid is uh, I was struck by Watchmen when it came out, Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. Um, it was a movie a few years ago, but it's, it's an amazing read. It was amazing for its time. I think it still really resonates now, um, and it did with me. And I remember bringing it in to my English teacher in junior high school, of all things, and trying to get her to read it. And, uh, you know, not going over like a lead balloon, essentially, because it was a comic book, right? In the 80s, uh, I and mean, even still today, I would imagine there are still um, teachers that don't take that seriously as a literary um, outlet or as a literary um, venture. Uh, was there anything for you that really struck you as, gosh, I wish they would teach this in school or something along those lines? So there were Heinlein novels that I really enjoyed that I thought would be beneficial. And that was sort of in his middle period when he was writing Stranger in a Strange Land, mm -hmm. um, Time Enough for Love, those stories. They were, they were great character studies, I felt, as a, as a teenage um, student. Um, but science fiction, again, wasn't, wasn't taken very seriously. And I, I can remember I had one teacher, actually, that ridiculed science fiction. And, um, and I, I remember this conversation fairly clearly. The, the teacher was there. There were a couple of my fellow students were there. I was the only student saying that science fiction is cool. You know, there's things that we can learn from it. And, and the teacher was leading the ridicule charge. And, and my classmates were saying, oh, yeah, that science fiction, you know, stuff is just really kind of stupid and... You know, they're making fun of it, and, you know, and I just sort of rolled my eyes back, and now I can laugh, <laughs> you know. Now, yeah, now that we're in charge of the world, 
And I'm um, just trying to such. track them all down on Facebook just so I can <laughs> leave obnoxious posts on their wall saying, yeah, now uh-huh. who's laughing? But um, so it is interesting how we've moved from that. Um, one thing that was um, uh, actually I really enjoyed is I, when I was taking my undergrad, I was studying computer science, and that's where I got what I got from Rollins. But I took a course in science fiction and literature, and um, the, the Rollins professor, she's, she's passed, Twyla Pape was, um, she, she worked in the English department. She was head of the, the writing center at the time, mm-hmm. and I worked in the writing centers, um, you know, helping other students with their writing. And um, the science, that science fiction class was just wonderful for me. It was, it was finally, I could have serious discussion about the ideas that I felt were important, significant, meaningful in some way, both from a societal impact perspective as well as an individual, what it means to me. So I really enjoyed that, and it was here at Rollins. In a way, did it help validate your interest in those things and make you feel a little bit better about uh, reading that and talking about that? I I don't know that it validated my um, interest, but it gave me a community. Mm. You know, I I knew that there was a community, and that was, it was in pre-internet, you know, pre-social media. So it wasn't like I was linked in by computer to people around the world who mm-hmm. loved the same sorts of things I do, but um, finding a community and finding um, real formal materials about what what spoke to me, that was just, it was very nice, very uh, liberating. So in many ways, sometimes you have to be a cheerleader for whatever genre that you're into when you're bringing it into, uh, you know, certain settings. Right. So whether you're a fan of science fiction or, um, you know, even considering science fiction, like especially the popular stuff, uh, like the um, young adult novels. So whether that's the uh, the one with the bows and arrows, and I can never remember the name. The Hunger Games. Hunger Games, thank right. you. Uh, or even the Twilight Saga. There's, you know, certain people feel like they have to uh, poo-poo that or look down right. their nose at it. The and, Divergent series. Yeah. So... Yes, the the one thing that I've learned is is people like what they like, and there's really no point in looking at someone else saying what you like is stupid. You should like what I like. Right. I mean, you can do all sorts of analysis to say why why the craft wasn't well done and by a particular author or by in a particular story, but when people have preferences, I, it's just it's not cool, right? Just don't tell somebody their stuff is dumb. It makes no sense. So what about, there's a lot of controversy around this last uh, Star Wars, The Last Jedi. Right. And there was some that was very troll-worthy um, right. when it came to uh, the characters or, you know, what gender they were, what race they were. That was just awful. But there were things that, as a fan of Star Wars, uh, since I was a kid, as a fan of science fiction, they were very nitpicky to me. Right. And so do you find you still do that when you're watching a movie or a TV show or reading a book where you go, oh, you know, a cringeworthy moment where you just go, not even why the character would make that decision, more they do something that takes you out of the moment. Right. So so that happens. That's that's an undeniable fact of any literature, any genre. Um, You'll, you'll find something that takes you out of the moment. And I think that point, that inflection point, is different for different people. Some people are willing to spend a lot more because they love the characters and they just want to go with the flow and have some popcorn and enjoy what they're doing. Others are um, 
they just enjoy the act of picking something apart because it's not scientifically accurate, yeah. even though we're talking about things that have not even been scientifically made. So, um, and I, I tend to be on the more forgiving side as I consume things for entertainment. Because, you know, I, I, I want to be entertained, and so if I like more stuff, I'm more likely to be entertained. But if I find cringeworthy moments, and I, and I have in, in, in Star Wars, I love Star Wars, I have in Star Trek and other franchises, in the Marvel franchise, mm-hmm. if I find those things, I don't typically spend a long time obsessing over them. I might have some conversations with my family or with my friends and say, well, that was kind of funny, this didn't make sense. Sometimes I enjoy being a curmudgeon and saying, well, this is really the dumbest thing, but I, I, I don't feel that I'm really um, mean, mean-spirited about it. But there's a, there's a subset of fans that they'll find things that they don't like, and then they make it their mission to take down the franchise or to hurt the franchise right, or to ruin the enjoyment of other people, yeah. which I, I, don't, I don't get that. It, I've, there have been many... Um, books that I've read, series that I've read that I've abandoned before getting to the end or continuing the series because I just lost interest. And I didn't then make it my life's mission to ruin the author's reputation and to find all the fans of this author and say, you're an idiot, you're dumb, just you shouldn't be spending your money on this. Or, you know, the same goes with any movie franchise that I'm watching. And that's, that's a phenomenon, that's a very bad phenomenon of social media. It's easy for people to say something negative and then hear the echo chamber of, well, yes, you're right, and then get on the negativity soapbox and then try to perpetuate that, and that's amplified. You know, if it used to be my audience was the kids in my neighborhood. Right. So if I said something negative, it didn't really go past that, and outside negativity didn't come into that audience, and therefore we were mostly positive. But now you can find pockets of negative everywhere, and even as a percentage of humanity, it might be tiny. In raw numbers, it's big, and it swells a person's head to have a negative audience. And I think we're just, it's, you know, it's bad in a number of ways. We do that in politics. We do that in media and entertainment. We just focus on negative things and try to feed our negative audience. Well, it's much easier to get attention that way. And it's much easier to have that opinion than to look at it and go in depth on it. Um, but I think it's interesting you touch on a point there, though, that is sometimes you need to vent a little bit, right? Sometimes you do need to be the curmudgeon right. uh, to an extent to feel better about or talk to somebody about, talk me through this or find that. And so maybe that's a service we can provide when you're feeling particularly negative instead of telling the world on social media. Just call us. Call the vent hotline. Call the vent hotline. I like that. And venting is a term. It's a science term in terms of venting the the rocket engines from excess gas. But that's also a very well-used science fiction term, venting. So, yes, that would be a science fiction venting hotline. Let's do that. Let off some gas. Let's do that. Then I think we're going to have to have counseling for the people who take those calls and have to have those conversations. They can be AIs. Okay, but then what happens is so now we see where this is going. The AIs yep. will get so this much is, venting, they will is, be turned negative, yep. and they'll determine that they have to wipe the scourge of humanity from the earth because the, they're just bringing them down. The only way that humans can be happy is if they're gone. Yes, great. Okay, great. So that's where the apocalyptic future comes from. It's not Skynet; it's the vent hotline. hotline. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's take one last break. Uh, we're going to hear another song on WPRK, Winter Park, Florida. This is Smiling for the Camera. 
Um, and this will segue into the last topic, which will be when are we going to find ETs and what our reaction will be when we do find them. So this is by Sarah Burton, and you're listening to Odd Numbers on WPRK, Winter Park, Florida. Happy birthday, Deli Fresh Threads. Back on episode 100, I got to sit down with Anthony Biggie Bencomo. He's the brains behind Deli Fresh Threads, which takes your favorite sandwiches and makes them into shirts. You can have them so people know what your favorite sandwich is in case they want to get you a gift. Get them in case you have a memento brain issue and you're always forgetting your favorite sandwich. That seems insensitive when I said that out loud. He's been doing this for six years and he's so ridiculously good at branding. You should absolutely listen to that episode if you're start if you've started your own company you're thinking about starting one you know someone who started one any scenario check out this episode get some tips from anthony bencomo congratulations biggie go to delifreshthreads.com sarah burton on wprk winter park florida smiling for the camera from her brand new album give me what I want. So those both themed for aliens as our talk today is about science fiction, aliens, comic books, and a number of other things. Uh, my special guest, Hap Aziz. Good morning, Hap. Good morning, Nick. We just got a few more minutes. Uh, so I did want to play that song because, you know, this idea of finding alien life, we may have found some fossils here and there. We may have found some signs of it here and there, there's you know 4,000 exoplanets that we've confirmed to have found. Not many in a green zone, but that doesn't really preclude uh, you know uh, life uh, from happening on those planets somehow. Sure. Um, what do you think? What is your reaction going to be? Because you don't know until it actually happens. And what do you think in general people's reactions are going to be if we find alien life in our lifetime? So. We'll have a whole um, contingent of conspiracy theorists that will say that even with the the film and visual confirmation yeah. that it's some sort of government scam hoax, and yeah. it's going to be some way of subjugating the people to the will of some you know the Freemasons or something. So there's there's going to be that, and um, you know along with the, they'll probably be joined by the flat earthers. And um, and the anti-vaxxers, boy, I'm just on a roll. I'm I'm not offending anybody. So, um, uh, so there there will be that. There, the interesting argument to me, or the interesting conversation, is going to be around um, how this impacts the idea of religion and God. And I yeah. I hear people talking about it now. On the one hand, people will say, boy, we, you, you better hope, you religious person, better hope we don't discover aliens or they discover us because that will disprove God and figuring I'm not quite understanding how that would be. So that conversation would be interesting. I can imagine there will be religious people who will say that, see, this is proof of God. There will be religious people who will lose faith over this, and there will be religious people who say, I don't know, just part of the story. And then there will be non-religious people that fill those categories as well. So I don't know that that's going to prove anything other than just give more fodder for, for stressful conversations. I, I think that there's the likely um, there's the likelihood that 
a lot of people may stop trying to do what they do. They might see futility in their work or their lives if they see a race that has advanced beyond us and sort of sort of like reverting into a childhood thing, like, okay, well, why do I have to do anything? You give me what I need. Mm-hmm. You, you have this great power. I, you know, there's nothing. I, all I did is you know, built an airplane that got a few miles up in the air and you're flying all over the galaxy. So that may be, that may be a challenge. And then, of course, a lot of it's going to have to do with what their motivations are at visiting themselves and revealing us. In science fiction, one of the tropes is do not contact an alien race until they've demonstrated the capacity for space flight or interstellar flight. We've def- we have the capacity for one, but not the more advanced one yet, so I don't know. Yeah, so prime directive sort of stuff. You don't want to stunt the growth right. of a particular culture. You don't want to change the fate of a particular culture right um and that's explored that's one of the things they explore very very well in uh star trek both the original series and uh the next generation right so it's interesting all right hap we've got to get out of here we don't have to go home in fact we have to probably go to work that's a good idea hap aziz h-a-p-a-z-i-z dot wordpress.com is where you can learn more about hap is there anything else you want to add to that in terms of how to follow, how to like, anything you want to say to people out there. Yeah, they just go to go to the blog, and again, uh, you'll see how much I resemble Stan Lee. Okay. And, um, and, and that may be a very big disappointment. Aw, I don't think so. Uh, next week, Richard M. Smith will be here from Florida Hops, so we'll be talking. I really have to make a sacrifice and talk about beer, so I'm sure I'm going to have to drink a lot over the course of this week. In a couple of weeks on April Fool's Day, Victoria Walsh, the macrame mama, will be here. And then I've got a few episodes coming out uh, this week. One was a big one for me. You mentioned the college admission scandal earlier, Hap. Um, what I did is I often ask people who are on the show about what their plans are after high school. So I put together a few segments uh, from some recent guests about that because I think it's important to have conversations around and, and address the bias that we have about you have to go to college right. to be successful. You have to go to college right out of high school. It has to be four years. Um, listen to this episode if you choose to and see if those conversations uh, you know, resonate with you in any way and have more conversations around that as well because that really, as, as an admissions, as someone who was in college admissions for a long time, that was a very, very um, I, hurtful isn't the right word, but to see that level of... Um, uh, terribleness happening in college admissions and in college in general. Um, I wanted to do something about that. I wanted to address it in some way. Yes, so, that's very important. So listen to that tomorrow. You've been listening to Odd Numbers on WPRK, Winter Park, Florida. Hap, let's shake hands on the air because it's okay. always sounds interesting. We're shaking hands. Great, shaking. great. Um, very, very well translated to radio. Let's listen to a song. This is Caitlin Aurelia Smith from her new album, the kid this is a song called i am learning so from an ai perspective very appropriate yeah that'll work on learning WPRK. to take over yeah 100 on wprk winter park florida you've been listening to a certain degree and that's the show thanks for listening to odd numbers episode 14 where do you go from here There is so much sci-fi we didn't get to. What is your favorite? Get with me and Hap on the social medias and let us know so we have something else to distract us from actual work. 
Also visit to a certain degree.com. That's T-O-A certain degree.com. Subscribe, do all those things. Thanks for listening. I'll truly miss our little talks.